chapter 11, and we're just going to read the first three verses, but you remember the context of Hebrews 11. It's that great hall of fame of faith, right? That's the whole point of chapter 11. It actually flows out of the very end of chapter 10, um, where the writer has just been talking about uh, not giving way, not compromising. Uh, when he said at the end of chapter 10, back in verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls and then the writer jumps into this long chapter on faith with one Old Testament example after another, okay? So as we read verses 1 through 3, I want you to be kind of shocked about what the writer puts in there as very, very important at the beginning of this discussion about faith. So out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me in standing. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made of things that are visible. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God, the almighty maker of all things in heaven and on earth, the one who created all things very good. Help us this night as we probe your decree of creation to believe better and enjoy more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So you don't have to do what we've been doing where you uh, open up the, unless you have your own copy of the Shorter Catechism, open up the Trinity hymnal at the back on page 870. And then during this lesson, I'll read the question we're looking at and you respond with the answer. We'll be looking at specifically numbers nine and ten, or eight, uh, nine and ten. Last Sunday, and I encourage you if you weren't here last Sunday, uh, we dealt with actually God's decrees, and I think that everyone would find those as you listen to those that lesson. I think you'll find it very, very encouraging and helpful as you think about God's decrees and what that means and doesn't necessarily mean. And so you need to have your Bible open, so you've got your Trinity hymnal open on one side with the catechism and your Bible open on the other leg, or whatever, wherever you want to put it, you know, so you can be ready. We're going to look at several passages of Scripture. And what I want you to see is that question 9 and 10 does exactly what question 11 and 12 is going to do. It's going to be the first question about creation, just like the first question about providence, are going to be extensive, and then the next question is going to be explicit. So it's going to be all about creation and then it's going to get very specific in the next question about one aspect of creation. Same thing when we get to providence next week. This broad picture of providence and then it's going to get very explicit. Does that make sense? So you need to see that. That's what's going on there in those. So we need to first off deal with the extensive number question number nine and so I'll read the question. You respond with the answer. What is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. 
So notice as we began our reading in Hebrews chapter 11, notice what the writer does. It, the writer is talking about faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so several places in Hebrews 11, the not seen part plays big. And so verse 3 has to do with the seen and not seen. That what you see around you is not created out of the visible. Very interesting. And also that um, by this faith, the brothers and sisters of old time uh, uh, got their commendation. Okay? And so the very first place the writer goes is with, to creation. When he's talking about faith, I find that intriguing. Very interesting. That the very first place, we always go to Abraham, or we go to Isaac, or we go to Sarah, we go further on in the chapter. But verse 3 is where it begins. It's creation. And not just anything about creation, but this specifically. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Now, my friends, you could almost take that statement and twist it just a little bit, and you have the statement for evolutionists. By faith, we believe that all things evolved. Why is it by faith? Because nobody was there. You weren't there, I wasn't there, Darwin wasn't there, we weren't there. We don't really know other than what's been told to us. Does that make sense? So truly it is by faith we believe these things. And there's nobody out there that doesn't have some faith aspect when it comes to the beginning of all things. Okay? So I think that's extremely important for us as we begin this, realizing that yes, this is a big faith statement, but no surprise, everybody else has got a faith statement, right? And so we're saying we think that what God says happened at the beginning is actually what happened. Does that make sense? Okay. So by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Notice that. By the Word of God, by the command and direction of God. And then what is seen was not made from things that are visible. And I'll get into some of this in a little bit more in just a minute. But notice that. The things that are seen are not made by what is visible. God is the invisible, if you will. He is a spirit. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal. He's the one who made all things. It's by the word of his power. Things just didn't, just didn't show up from other things. And so, you get it? That's, there it is. Okay. Very important statement. And that's Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. If you notice in our reading our psalm reading the same kind of thing comes up in our responsive psalm reading in psalm 148 and we could have just spent the whole night in psalm 148 it's a beautiful psalm about all creation but it's a it's verses five and six so if you're reading if you're looking in your uh worship guide it's about uh one two three four it's the it's the third elder and third all there notice how the writer puts it um several hundred years before hebrews 11 let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, there's the word of his power, he commanded, and they were created, and he established them forever and ever, and he gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Creation. God created all things by the word of his power. It's interesting that Paul will do what the writer of Hebrews does. In uh, Romans chapter 4, so I've given you all these references, by the way, in your sermon notes. In Romans 4, verse 17, when Paul is talking about the faith of Abraham and how he was justified, he received it by faith, it's very interesting how Paul sneaks in the creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing in there. 
Here's what Paul says in Romans 4, 17. God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Here's Paul talking about Abraham and his faith and how he was justified. And Paul sneaks in creation because it's hugely important in what we believe. It's foundational. If we don't get that right, we don't get a lot of things right. Okay, and hopefully I'll bring more of that up when we talk about Adam and Eve next week. (laughs) A little bit more, okay? But I think that's really important. And so you'll see all of this creation. God created all things by the word of his power. You'll see it in all over Isaiah. I gave you some references. Isaiah 42.5, 44.24, 45.12, and so forth. And you heard it in our call to worship. So I'm going to ask you to look at our call to worship from Colossians 1, right here at the top. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now just stop a moment. Our Jehovah's Witness friends would say, see, he was the first creature. Because isn't the firstborn the first child born in a family? Well, sometimes, but not always. Firstborn is very royal language. So if you're writing a note down, I didn't give you this reference, but you might want to write down Psalm 89 and verse 27, where the writer of the psalm is telling about God's promise about his offspring would be the king of all the earth. This is what he says. I will make him the firstborn, the greatest of the kings of the earth. I will make him the firstborn, i.e. the greatest of the kings of the earth. So when Paul says Christ is the firstborn of creation, he's not saying he's the first creature. He's saying he is the greatest king of the earth, of creation. He's the firstborn of creation. You got that? All right, let's move on. So it goes on, he says, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, you have to stop a moment. All things were created through him and for him. You have to think about this. That means all creation is for him. And so how we treat creation has a lot to say with how we treat the king of creation. It's for him. This is not our world. As the song says, this is our Father's world, right? This is our Father's world, right? So how we treat creation is a lot to say how we're actually responding to the King of creation. So all things were created through Him and for Him, and He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You'll notice the creatio ex nihilo, the creation out of nothing there, the word of His power, the means by which He creates all things is the word, Jesus who holds it all together, and all creation is for Jesus. Oh, well, maybe that's why Paul slips in creation when he's talking about Abraham's faith. Maybe that's why the writer of Hebrews brings in creation at the beginning of faith, because creation is a part of the gospel. Creation is a part of the gospel. Okay? So this is very important. All right, so let's move on. And so therefore, keeping with Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the catechism in question and answer 9 excludes, in its answer, it is excluding other options and possibilities and it is pinpointing one position. 
So let me, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to go fast, but slow me down. If, if you don't understand, raise your hand, okay? But let me give you, let me show what I mean. Contrary to Plato's shapeless, undefined mass of eternal matter, Plato said nothing was created out of nothing because something was already here. It was this eternal, formless, shapeless matter that the master craftsman had to pull up next to, get out, pull out his toolbox, and start shaping it into the, into the image of the divine form. So matter is eternal. So contrary to Plato's eternal matter or Aristotle's, circular motion of the eternal state of things. So even Aristotle followed Plato, thinking that all things have always existed. Contrary to that, um, the writers are very candid that before God made all things, there was nothing material. There was only God. God making all things of nothing. Further, in definitive opposition to those myths that had the cosmos, the creation, being shaped and formed by deities out of the slaughtered carcasses of their defeated older divinities. This happened with the Greeks, and this happened with the Mesopotamians and all that. They had this myth that what you see is actually part of the dead carcass of some earlier deity that the newer, younger deities have cut up and created that sounds gory, right? But that's the picture. Wow. So contrary to that, or in definitive opposition to those myths, or the myth of happenstance or uh, of coincidental or fortuitous chance, notice that they are very candid. God made all things by the word of his power. Right? So there's no happenstance and there's no, there's no divine battle in heaven. Right? That ends up becoming part of creation. Okay. Further, moving away from some early, some early Christian interpretations of Genesis that took Genesis 1 and 2 as only allegorical, like origin, but not historical. The writers are very clear about uh, Genesis 1 and 2's historicity and creation's historicity starting, uh, stating the length of time that God chose to, make, to take in creating all things in the space of six days. It's not that God had to do it in six days. He chose to do it. So all of this is about God being in charge. God, um, uh, God making, making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days. God is in charge of the time frame. He wasn't limited he chose to take six days. But they're very clear and candid about the specificity of the length of time. Finally, the answer is throwing out Gnosticism, Marcionism, and Manichaeism. Where they, all of them say, body bad, spirit good, creation bad, becoming a spirit, one of the wise spirits with Plato, and going off and becoming a star or whatever. They're throwing those forms out and affirming the goodness, notice the goodness, the beauty, the delight of creation in the eyes and heart of God. When you listen to the catechism question as it draws from Genesis 1 and 2, the one who's pleased with creation is not humans, it's God. Creation tickles God peak, so to speak. It pleases Him, and that's what they're affirming in this catechism answer 
the goodness, the beauty, the delight of creation in the eyes and the heart of God, and all very good. So that should make us happy. I mean, it's a great question and answer. Okay? So let me take a step to the side just momentarily without getting lost out in the field in the Johnson grass and the briars. I need to state that both the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the Presbyterian Church in America have both done studies on the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. Both denominations have affirmed that there are legitimate perspectives on the seven days laid out in Genesis 1. There are legitimate perspectives on those seven days that are allowed. They're perspectives that do not hold to the seven days as seven calendar days. Okay? Now that being said, both denominations, number one, deny macroevolution. That's the old Darwinian big picture evolution. They both deny macroevolution. Both studies in both denominations deny theistic evolution. Even though B.B. Warfield, Charles Hodge, and all those guys did it, they said, meh, we're not going there. Okay? So they both deny macroevolution and theistic evolution. Both denominations in their study paper affirm the historical specificity of an actual, real, live Adam and Eve as the fountainhead of all humankind. Thirdly, both affirm the historicity of the Genesis account. Fourth, both affirm that the writers of the catechism and the writers of the con- who are the writers of the confession of faith originally meant seven calendar days in the catechism and in the confession. Why am I bringing that up? Just to say clearly that you need to know those are there, but also to point out that every minister, every elder, every deacon in the PCA, because of our vows, agrees to at least the first three of these affirmations that I just mentioned. No macroevolution, no theistic evolution, there is a real historical Adam and Eve, and Genesis 1 and 2 are historical. I mean, they, they happened, okay, they're legit, right? The one that is not necessarily uh, held to, has to be held to, is the seven calendar days. There's, a, there's actually a framework look at scripture that actually sees a framework there and not necessarily this is exactly how it happened in 27, 24 hour days. There's the day age theory, which talks about, you know, how scripture often uses day for a period of time, for like a long period of time, right? There are seasons like there are places in scripture that do that and one or two others, but they cannot affirm evolution and agree with it and so forth. Now I hold to the seven calendar days, which always is fun to do. I say seven calendar days because the Sabbath is part of creation, right? We always say six-day creation. Well, it's actually seven. The seventh day was created as a day of rest, okay? So I just wanted to put that in there. You just need to, you need to know that, okay? So if somebody says a minister in the PCA does not, uh, holds to evolution, you need to challenge that and say if he does, you need to bring him up on charges. You need to have him investigated because it's not legitimate, okay? All right, so let's go back. And so the Westminster Shorter Catechism 9 has to do with the extensiveness of creation. The next question and answer is more explicit. So let's do question and answer 10. I'll read the question. You respond with the answer. How did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. 
So notice our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 45. It's really just the first verse that Peter read, verse 18. Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. You hear the, ex, the creatio ex nihilo, right? Creation out of nothing there. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, there is no other. Isaiah 45, 18. Well, some of our more rugged and uh, radical uh, environmentalists probably won't like that passage because God made the earth to be inhabited. We belong here, right? Okay. So where do we go then to find out in greater detail about the inhabitants that God formed the earth for? Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, yes, give him a gold star. That's right, Genesis chapter 1. So I would like, I'd like you to go to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 26. You, you ever notice how Genesis 1 is one of the hardest passages to find because there's all the preface and the table of contents and everything else under the sun before? All right, Genesis 1. Let me get there. And I'm going to start at verse 26. And I'm going to read through verse 31, and I want you to listen to the primary inhabitant, if you will, that he made the earth for. And I want you to pay attention to the language used in verses 26 through 28, and I also want you to pay attention to when he made humankind, what he did, what he did, what he gave them. It goes completely opposite to every myth out there, okay, in all of the ancient world. Here we go. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth and God said behold i have given you i have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with the seed and its fruit You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and the morning, there was morning the sixth day. Let me begin begin at the end. Notice that God creates all things and, and humankind and, and, and animals. And what does he do? What's the very first thing he does? After he, he says, I'm going to make humans in my own image, then what does he do? Huh? Yeah, he does say it's very good, but he does, he does something before that. What does he do? He gives. And what does he give? He gives plenty. He gives lots of victuals to eat. In Mesopotamian mythology, Marduk makes humankind to feed Marduk. Here's Genesis chapter 1. God says, I don't need you to feed me. You need me to feed you. Here it is, a smorgasbord. 
Genesis 1 is just full of great and good news. I just want to point that out to you, okay? So, notice that on the sixth day, after God made the livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind, verse 24 and 25, he then makes humankind. He makes Adam. Adam is made out of Adama, out of the red dirt, right? So Adam comes from Adama. So he makes humankind, Adam, in his own image and after his likeness, verse 26. And in the words of the catechism, that means he makes, he makes them in his own image and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. Now that knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, just as a side thought for you quickly, is drawing from Ephesians 4, 24 and Colossians 2, 10. Where in both passages, Paul says that we're growing in the image of God in knowledge and righteousness, uh, and the, uh, see, uh, righteousness and holiness, and the other one it says in knowledge. So they're just pulling together those two passages saying, well, obviously that's the image of God or part of the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So God makes humankind in his own image. It's here, my friends, that we need to stop a moment and we need to pay careful attention to a hugely important set of points that we can all too easily pass over. Okay? So let's do that. The first point to look at is singularity and plurality. Singularity and plurality, right? So one, many. Singularity and plurality. Notice that God's plurality runs throughout. If you go back to verses 26 through 28, look for the plural. Let us make man. Let in our image, our likeness. So the plurality is there. But then notice also God's singularity at the very same time. And so God created man in his image, singular. In the image of God, he created man, singular. Verse, that was verse 27. We hear that and we go, and there's all kinds of hypotheses. Well, what is all of that about? I mean, is it, was it God talking to a council of angels? Was it, was it this? Was it this? Was it this? The New Testament tells us what it, what it is. Because in the New Testament, that's where we begin to fathom that the one singular God is actually a plurality of persons. One God who is simultaneously the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, now we understand who's talking, right? But there's singularity and plurality at the same exact point. That leads us then to a second point. That when God creates humankind in his own image after his likeness, he doesn't bring forth one singular genderless, no-sex individual. He doesn't bring forth two of the exact same sex. In the end, when he makes humankind in his own image, we hear the same order of singularity and plurality. So listen to how he talks about humankind. Verse 26 through 27. Let us make Man, here's the singularity. Let us make man. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. But then there's also plurality. And let them have dominion. Male and female, he created them. 
and God blessed them, and God said to them, etc. Notice that from the very, very, very get-go, from day six, right, the sixth day, from day six, humankind was made to display the singularity, humankind, and the plurality, distinctly male and female, in a way that reflects the beauty of God's own image and inner life. Now, my friends, before I get too far in this, you've heard some of this before, you're going to hear it again throughout the years, but this is ginormous. It's because the church has not kept this up in reminding our children of these things, that now some of our children have turned around and said gender is fluid, sex is fluid, we can make ourselves whatever we want to. It's our fault, partly, because we didn't come home to this and keep saying, no, this is what God says is very good. This is how He really made us, and it's beautiful, and it reflects the image of God. So I'm going to pound on this for a little bit, okay? So put on your seatbelt and get ready. Here we go. So God created male, man, notice how the catechism even puts it. God created man, male and female, after his own image. I think it's interesting. As they're summarizing Genesis 1, they put the male and female and in his own image right next to each other. God made man, male and female, in his own image. And so as Beth Felker Jones in her uh, uh, chapter she wrote called Embodied from Creation Through Redemption in a book titled Beauty, Order, and Mystery, as she puts it, quote, We bear that image, the divine image, in the diversity of male and female flesh. So Nancy Piercy takes that even further, and in her book, Love Thy Body, which I highly recommend, she writes, quote, The communion of male and female is meant to mirror the divine, the communion of divine persons within the Trinity. So think about that. There's distinction there, and yet there's unity there. And that communion between husband and wife, between male and female, is intended to picture the inner communion of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's important. It's valuable. And if you take that away, it messes up everything. Okay? So further... These differentiated humans, male, female, these differentiated humans are given a purpose. In Genesis 1, what's their purpose? Yeah, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion over all creatures, etc. Notice that their task, as the image of God, together as differentiated humans, male and female together, their task is a very fleshy, Very embodied mission. Have lots of kids and fill the earth. That's pretty fleshy and embodied and it's beautiful. So Augustine was wrong. Shame on you, St. Augustine, you were wrong. Augustine didn't like sex. Well, he actually did, and that's why he overcompensated in the other direction. But that's beside the point, all right? And so he said really bad things about, um, about husband and wife relationships later. Okay, so shame on him, he was wrong. It's a beautiful thing. It's a it's very fleshy and embodied mission. A fruitfulness and dominion mission. Okay? It is a work that is to be done, not by rugged individualists. God made man in his own image. God made them male and female. We were never created to be individualists. 
That's why solitary confinement, by the way, is really damaging, really does hurt real people. Okay? Because we're not made to be in solitary confinement. We're made to be in a community. Okay? And so, it's a work that is to be done in community, in a community of sexual delineation of distinct males and females. In fact, as it is recorded later in chapter 2 and verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God does what? He builds the woman from the side of Adam and he brings her to Adam and he draws and thus draws from Adam this response. This is at last, is, uh, this at last is my bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I love the way the fact that the English in one place really does well with what is in the Hebrew, right? Woman and man. In the Hebrew, it's she shall be called Isha because she was made from Ish, woman. You get it, right? Okay, there it is. And so she, um, she is a helper, notice, that is fit for the man. She's not identical to the man. She's different from the man, but she is fit for the man so that there can be communion. And in that communion and community, they can then be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion of the earth. Uh, verse 20, chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. Isn't that interesting? A man shall leave his father and his mother. Already at the very beginning, assuming procreation will be one man, one woman. A man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. They'll become united together. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. That includes this sexually differentiated maleness and femaleness. It is in God's eyes very good. My friends, our biology and distinct sex as male and female at ground zero, Genesis chapter 1, points out that we were made for a monogamous, one man, one woman relationship. Even our Lord Jesus has something to say about all of this, including our biological sex. So I want you to go to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 19. So Matthew chapter 19, um, verses 1 and 2 give you kind of background, and then comes the event in verse 3. So verse 1 and 2, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read? I love that line. What a response. You're supposed to be keepers of the law. Have you not read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Notice that here, the religious elites come up to Jesus to try to trip him up. And what's their trip? What's the one, the snag they're trying to use on him? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
And notice that our Lord zeroes in his answer. He zeroes it in. He pulls from both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Genesis 1. Now Genesis 2. And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God, therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Notice first off, that not only does Jesus accept the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 as compelling and valid. Let me say that again. Notice Jesus finds the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 compelling and valid. So if you want to know, did Jesus think that, the, that Genesis 1 and 2 were fictitious and, and they really didn't happen? No, he just told you. Right? Secondly, he affirms in his answer, he affirms the rightness, the goodness, the faultlessness and fittingness of sexually distinct males and females. When God made humankind in his image, he did not bring forth an asexual, androgynous, multi-gendered or genderless person. He brought two sexed individuals who were what we would call the opposite sex. And he said, very good. And this very goodness of creation includes it brings in, and it, you know, it's all about this, uh, 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 this differentiated biological sex of male and female. This all brings Todd Wilson in a, to brilliantly observe in his book titled Mere Sexuality. I wonder where he got that title idea from. Anyways, his book, Mere Sexuality, he says this, and this is huge. The Bible says having sexed bodies is essential to our identity, not optional. It's a gift we receive, not a choice we make. Genesis 1. Our sex is a gift to be received, not a choice that we make. Is that big or what? It's very important. Okay? So scripture is very clear that our gender and sexuality and their distinctiveness, male, female, are essential to our being the image of God. Therefore, with the Bible-shaped catechism answer, we come forth affirming the goodness, the rightness, the flawlessness of femaleness. We come forth proclaiming the goodness, the rightness, the flawlessness of maleness. In fact, I want you to remember the story of Matthew 19. And remember, these religious leaders are coming to Jesus. They are men. And what are they coming to Jesus to do? To find some way to misuse their women. To treat them as lesser than the image of God. Hey, can we divorce our wives for any reason? I mean, they're discardable, right? Can't we just get rid of them at a whim? That's telling you that they're looking at their women as less than part of the image of God. Shame on them. Thank you, Jesus, for your answer. No! That's his answer in a nutshell, right? Okay. That's a very important point. And so by our Lord's affirming the divinely made creation order, notice that Jesus is preserving the goodness of females. No, you cannot discard them. You cannot misuse them. You cannot treat them however you choose to. 
They're part of the image of God. He is affirming and sustaining the divinely created order of the goodness of females as well as males. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, says our Lord. Further, my friends, this means that we are each called to exhibit and fulfill our image of God, um, to fulfill our image of God nature, and to do so as males and as females. Our prime directive, to steal a phrase from Star Trek, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever as males, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever as females. Does that make sense? And so, additionally, we are to receive our maleness and receive our femaleness. If you're a woman, receive your femaleness. Men, receive your maleness as a gift with thanksgiving. So we should lift up our hearts saying thank you. Women, we should lift up your hearts saying thank you that um, you made me female. And as female, you call me to glorify you and enjoy you forever. Men, you should give thanks. Thank you, Lord, that you made me male. And as a male, you call me to glorify you and enjoy you forever. Another way to say this is how Kelly Capick, and I think this is the last quotation in your, in your notes there. Kelly Capick, who wrote a book I highly recommend, I've been recommending it for years, called Embodied Hope. As he puts it this way, Our physicality was not a problem to be overcome, but a gift essential to our existence. Our physicality, if we are male, if we are female, and just being physical is a gift. It's not a problem to be overcome. John Calvin was wrong in his institutes when he called the body the prison house of the soul. Shame on you, John Calvin. But he fixed it later on in the rest of the institutes, but that's another story. I'm just pointing out, we have been wrong when we have said those things. The body is not the prison house of the soul. The body, our physicality, is a gift to be received. Because when the resurrection comes, guess what's coming out of the ground? To be with God and enjoy Him forever. Our bodies. It's beautiful. God loved our bodies so much, God put on our humanity. And Jesus will always be both God and man in two distinct natures. It's good being physical. It's good being humans. And so that means then, being a male is a good thing. Being a female is a good thing. It's a gift to be received, not a choice to be made. Just as a side thought here very quickly, if you want to know what would Jesus say about the modern situation, you know, I wonder what Jesus would say about LGBTQ stuff. Well, you know, he never talks about homosexuality. Hello, Matthew 19, he just told you what he thinks about it. God made you a man. Be a man. God made you a woman. Be a woman. Glorify God and enjoy God with that gift. Does that make sense? He does tell us what he thinks about it. Okay. So going back to Kelly Capek's statement, our physicality is not a problem to be overcome, but a gift essential to our existence And so as we will come to find out in the catechism, starting with question 20 through 38, when we get there, question and answers 20 through 38, we will find that Jesus isn't going to become human and become incarnate to come and save us from our bodies. He has come embodied 
to save us body and soul. And so this question and answer in the catechism is hugely foundational. No wonder the writer of Hebrews puts it Creation at the very beginning as he talks about faith. No wonder Paul puts it in there when he talks about Abraham and his faith. It's hugely important. And so rejoice. Rejoice in God's good creation and that you are part of it. And there was no mistake. No mistake. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we are so grateful that you created all things by the word of your power in the space of six days and all very good. And when you made humankind, you made us male and female in your own image and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion of the creatures. Lord, forgive us where we have fallen short in our purpose and calling and our um, uh, program that you have laid out for us, our mission. Forgive us for the times we didn't raise our kids to realize that their femaleness or their maleness was a gift to be received, not a choice to be made. Forgive us for the times when we have said, and I've done it too, the body's a prison house of the soul. Lord, help us to rejoice in what you have given us, and most of all, to rejoice that you loved us so much, you became one of us to save us, body and soul. In Jesus' name, amen.